Good morning, Grace Church. How are we doing today? Good. My name is Adam. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, uh, if you're newer to Grace, so glad that you're here. If you are a father, I hope that you feel loved, cherished, honored, and enjoy your Father's Day. I can't help but think how memorable my Father's Day was last year. Uh, my kids and my wife treated me very well, but more the evening of Father's Day, I was at Quicken Loans Arena observing the Cavs with their first championship last year. So that kind of gets me through the sorrow of this week, remembering that we ended 52 years of our drought last year. And so this afternoon, I plan to literally drive away my sorrow of the Cavs loss. And I will do that on my new toy. This is my tooth... <laughs> 2006 Yamaha Vino 125cc scooter. So I've had that for about two, three weeks now. I actually, uh, it, the top speed on this hog is 45 miles an hour. So if you see me traveling around Norton, Barberton, Wadsworth, feel free to honk the horn. You can really spot the helmet. It's an evil Knievel looking helmet. Came with it off Craigslist. It's an amazing experience. So I've enjoyed it. I actually went to fill up uh, the other week, and I ran to Nelson right here, who leads our uh, Recovery in Christ ministry on Thursdays. He's like, be careful on that. I was trying to uh, swipe my credit card at the pump, and it didn't work. So I had to go in, and they're like, how much should we put in the tank? I'm like, I have no idea. This is the first time I filled it up. I was like, throw 10 bucks on. Well, I get back there to the pump, and this is how much it took. So I think it is maybe a one-gallon tank. So now I fill it up next to my lawnmower. It takes less time to fill up my scooter than my lawnmower. It's just easier. But if you are a father, I hope that you enjoy your day. I'd encourage you to fill out that drawing. Maybe you'll be one of the lucky ones to win. I know when Father's Day comes around, I often think of my role as a parent. I recognize that my children, three that I have now, are a gift from God, and God's entrusted me, uh, given them to me, entrusted me with those. And so I also recognize that my primary responsibility as a parent is to coach them spiritually, that I'm their primary disciple maker. And I want to help cultivate a heart for Jesus and a desire to make wise decisions. I've been thinking a lot about my daughter who will go to kindergarten in the fall and the friendships she will be making. I've been praying a lot about that. And as I think of this conversation on friendships, we recognize no matter what age that friendships are important to us. We've said week one that we were formed from friendship, that God has existed all time, for all eternity, forever within himself in the perfect friendship. That God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit exist in perfect unity, in community within himself. But more than that, that I am formed for friendship. That God created man in his image, and one aspect of his image is that we would be reflect him and that we are relational. There is this need that we have for God to fill, but there's also a need for us to be in relationship with one another. Man's first problem was loneliness, 
not sin, that we see in Genesis 2.18, that once God created, he said it was not good for man to be alone, that God has created us a desire, a need to connect with each other. But we've also said that we are formed by friendship. We know this instinctively. That's why I'm concerned about my daughter's friends, right? We know this experientially. Many of us have had experience where maybe we've run with the wrong crowd for a while, or maybe some of us have kind of been saved from making bad choices by some friends that have pointed us out. Well, God states it emphatically. In Proverbs 13, 20, it says, Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. My friends determine my future. My friendships end up forming me. There are some friendships that are dangerous, some that are destructive. The choice of our friends sets us up for success or struggle, triumph or tragedy, progress or defeat, profit or loss. Proverb goes on to say that we will not be a wise person unless we learn how to choose, forge, and keep terrific friendships. Look at Proverbs 12, 26. The righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Today, I want to finish up our conversation on friendship by talking about how to be a good friend and how to spot one. And so, I want to remind us of what we've introduced over the last two weeks, this idea of our friendship circle. Now, when you think of this circle, don't think of these as legitimate and illegitimate friends. The reality is that as we do life with, we can only be close with so many people. So many people will know our struggles, our thoughts, our fears, right? And so on the outside are those acquaintances. They're people we care about, people that we often pray about, but they only know us on the outside. Maybe they uh, read our Instagram or Twitter feed, right? They know a little bit about us. But then we have companions, those that we allow to influence and those we influence. We share life more regularly with this group of people. And in the center of that circle are our deep friendships. Those that know us intimately. Into me, you see. That we share our thoughts, our feelings, our struggles, that they know us for truly how we are. We asked each of you during week one to list your five closest friends. I've heard from many of you how hard of an exercise that is to think, but all of us recognize and desire a need for deep friendship. Statistically speaking, the American Sociological Review did a study 25 years ago, and then they repeated it a few years ago. And what they found was that 25 years ago, the average American had six close friends. 25 years later, the study significantly decreased by two-thirds. So on average, the average American has two close friends now compared to six two years ago. They say that if you take family members out of the equation, half of the people surveyed said that they did not have one close friend. We recognize that there are several things that hinder our ability and experience of forming deep friendships. The pace of life, 
We work long hours. We're busy filling our schedules with activities. The mobility of life. I know that I've had multiple friends who've moved away to different parts of the United States, right? That we move from job to job, from city to city. The isolation of life. Technology, uh, social media, television, for all its benefits, has changed the way which we interact with each other. So face-to-face chatting has kind of taken the place of text messaging. And not that all these benefits are bad, it's just changed our experience within friendship. I know it's Father's Day, and I want to take it easy on men, but statistically, men are less adept as they get older at forming close friendships. In his book, Lonely at the Top, The High Cost of Men's Success, psychologist Tom Joyner weaves a story that says the manly pursuit of status, power, wealth, and autonomy leads to great rewards in work and play, but often at the expense and cost of close, deep, caring friendships. I read numerous articles that talked about men on average kind of rest on their laurel, so to speak, that the people they meet in high school, in college, end up being their deep friends throughout, but they're not as good after that of forging new deep friendships. Regardless of where we're at in life, regardless of our gender, man, woman, and child, we recognize the need for friendships. Some of us at this point are lonely. Some of us are struggling through transition. Some of us are struggling to identify those who are close to us. My hope this morning is to paint a picture of deep biblical friendship. I hope that each of us will ask two questions. First, very obvious, who are my close, deep friends? But second, am I being a close friend to others? Now, I've been heavily influenced by Tim Keller and his work on friendship and a local pastor by the name of Jonathan Holmes who wrote a short book called The Company We Keep in Search of Biblical Friendship. So what I'd like to do this morning, this afternoon, is journey through one character in Scripture that some of us know fairly well, look at some of his friendships, and then support them with some biblical principles that we see. So... That character I want to introduce you to is the guy by the name of Paul. Paul is one of the prominent leaders of the early church. So from AD, kind of 30, all the way to 60, he would have planted numerous churches. He is the author who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen 14 out of 27 New Testament books. Paul grew up as Saul. He lived in Tarsus, which is modern-day Turkey, And he grew up in a very zealous um, Jewish, kind of a Pharisee home. So much so, at the age of 13, his parents sent him from Turkey to go live in Palestine and study under a guy named Gamil. Gamil was a well-known rabbi. And so for five or six years, Saul would have studied uh, the ancient Jewish history, their literature, their way of life. Saul would go on to be a lawyer. He was really skilled in debate and uh, very smart. And he most likely became a member of the Sanhedrin, 
The Sanhedrin was 71 men who kind of ruled Jewish life, so to speak. And he was very zealous for the promotion of Jewish life. And he would go about persecuting the early church, followers of the way. I want you to think for a moment, Paul, maybe 25, at most 30 years of age, who were his close friends, right? Most likely, what were the circles that he may have run in? Now, in Acts chapter 9, we we read of a dramatic experience related to Paul. So he's on the road to Damascus, ready to persecute more Christians, throw them in prison, and a bright light appears, he's blinded, and he hears the voice of Jesus. And he comes to understand that everything that he has been working for is of no benefit or profit. Because it's only by the grace and the love and the acceptance of Jesus Christ can he be in right relationship with God. So he has a complete 180 upside down turn. So he then heads back to Jerusalem. And he's beginning to integrate kind of with these new group of people, right? Now, it probably would have been really hard for Paul to make some close friends initially. But when you think of the life of Paul, who do you often think his close friends are or were? I know for me, I tended to think of some relationships that we would call disciple-making relationships. We introduced this idea last week. We said the verbiage we use here at Grace Church is that disciple-making relationships are intentional, relational, and exponential. And so when I think of Paul's relationships, I first think of those guys who he most likely interacted with as a mentor would interact with a mentee. So many of them he led to faith, in Christ, and he kind of discipled them early on on what it means to follow Christ. Some of these that we would know and stick out to us. A guy by the name of Timothy. He wrote two letters to the New Testament, encouraging and instructing Timothy of how to lead the early church. And we see that Paul calls him his faithful child in the Lord. A guy by the name of Titus that he wrote a book to that ended up leading the island of Crete. Titus most likely was led to Christ by Paul and he joined them on a second missionary journey. And he kind of spent time being discipled by Paul. A guy by the name of Tychicus. He journeyed with Paul on his third traveling uh, missionary journey. And Paul had the opportunity to heavily invest in his life, a close companion. A guy by the name of Onesimus. Onesimus was a slave who left his uh, owner Philemon, who Paul happened to know. Paul led Onesimus to Christ and wrote a letter back to Philemon of how that they were to reconcile. And so he discipled and invested in Onesimus. Another guy by the name of Apollos that we see in the New Testament. He's a young preacher that Paul helped kind of ground theologically as he taught in Corinth and in other places. So when I think of Paul, I tend to kind of drift towards his disciple-making relationships and friendships. Now, these over the course of years may have become friends, but initially a lot of these relationships started as a mentee to a mentor. So what I want to look today, I want to look at two of Paul's close friends one who we probably know of, another who maybe we have never heard of before. And I kind of want to journey through their relationship and then also support it with some principles related to friendship that we see in Scripture. 
So the two that I want to talk to you today, a guy by the name of Barnabas, who we see mentioned throughout the book of Acts, and a guy named One Sephorus, who only has four verses in the entire Bible dedicated to him. So I'd like for you to follow along with me on your notes. You can uh, follow along in our app, that's Grace Ohio, if you'd like to do it that way and send the notes to your email afterwards. But the first point that I see, deep friendships are forged through sacrifice marked by loyalty. So Barnabas is a prominent figure in the early church. He is in Jerusalem, and he has early leadership kind of credibility. And we see that as Paul comes back to Jerusalem, that Barnabas begins interacting with Paul. We see this in Acts chapter 9. It says, when he, that's Paul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So we see Paul kind of stick his neck out on behalf of, See Barnabas stick his neck out on behalf of Paul, that he kind of pledges, ties his reputation to Paul, so to speak. Historians and theologians believe that maybe Barnabas had gone to school with Gamil and with Paul, but they're not quite sure of what their relationship looked beforehand. But regardless, he sacrificed his reputation, placed loyalty on his newfound friendship with Paul. One Sephorus. One Sephorus, we find he was hanging out. He was from the city of Ephesus. Paul had made it there, planted a church on his second journey, stayed there three and a half years on his third journey. So he spent a lot of time getting to know one Sephorus. And so as Paul, towards the end of his missionary journeys, made it to Rome, we see that he's kind of looking back, talking about his relationship with one Sephorus. We see in verse 15 through 17, it says, You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phi and Herm. May the Lord show mercy to the household of one Sephorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he had found me. Ephesus to Rome is about 700 miles, a very long journey. Now, Paul, having been in Rome, it would have been very hard to spot or to find Paul because under the time of Nero there, Christians would have faced heavy persecution. So once before, us just couldn't go into the city and say, hey, I'd like to find where this prisoner Paul was. And Paul says that he searched very hard to make his presence and to be with him in a time of struggle and difficulty. Proverbs 26 says, Many claim to have unfailing love, but a faithful friend who can find. A faithful friend is a cherished gift. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. Often the depth of our relationship is shown through difficulty and adversity in times. The loyalty is tested. Proverbs 18.24, one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I love 
this idea of a friend that sticks closer into a brother. It would have been provocative, to say the least, in a kind of Middle Eastern culture where family was so heavily valued. And this idea is, uh, with sticks, it's the same word that's used in Scripture to, to cleave. It is a commitment out of passionate love for one another. A deep friend can be depended on through good times and bad. A sibling pledge loyalty often because we're part of the family. We're blood-related, but a friend is someone who has chosen to be with us. I love Tim Keller's definition of friend. He says, a true friend is someone who lets you in and never lets you down. Many friendships today aren't characterized by commitment, sacrifice, and loyalty. The idea of friendship can become disposable and fleeting. A true friend will stay with you through ups and downs, through the hills and valleys of life, whether grieving the loss of a loved one, a job, or a dream, a true friend will be there for you. A true friend is there to help us process maybe marriage struggles or broken relationships. True friendships are marked by faithfulness, forged through sacrifice, and depended on loyalty. There's a second thing I'd like us to see. Deep friendships express empathy and encouragement. Love author C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, says the beginning of friendship often takes place. The typical expression is something like this. What? You too, I thought I was the only one. Empathy is this idea of being able to place myself in another's shoes, to be able to understand their vantage point, their needs, and to be able to empathize with them. I believe empathy is kind of a cornerstone of deepening our relationships and friendships with one another. But not just empathy, it's encouragement, which means to literally blow courage or wind into each other's sails. Look at one Sephorus. So the way Paul describes him is that he's asking the Lord to show mercy because he often refreshed me. This word refresh me literally means to cool or to revive by fresh air. I think of it this way. Uh, yesterday, I wasn't outside for too long working, but imagine that you were outside a muggy, hot Saturday, and you know the thing that you crave is this cold, refreshing drink of water. That's kind of this picture of friendship that I get, that we're revived, that we're refreshed from being in the presence of close friends. Look at Barnabas. His name, Joseph, that we see in Acts chapter 4, verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Names are so significant. We see the first description of him. He sold a field owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. We see the apostles choose to call Joseph by the name of Barnabas, a son of encouragement. It kind of was a marker for who he was as an individual. So in Acts chapter 9, Barnabas sticks up for Paul. He is given a role in the early church. They ask him to go to Antioch. 
in Antioch, there's Gentile believers and Jewish Christians, and they're having trouble kind of understanding, and they want um, Barnabas to go pastor that group of people and give them the clarity of what the gospel is. So amidst being in this journey and kind of the struggles, he thinks back, Paul doesn't have a role. He's back in Tarsus. So it says that Barnabas goes out and he searches and he finds Paul and he brings him with him to Antioch. I think of what the early church may have been like without Barnabas, right? And so in this time of Barnabas kind of journeying with Paul, we see that Paul's gift of teaching and leading is kind of coming to the forefront. And an interesting thing Luke records in the book of Acts. So when the two of them are talked about together for many, many chapters, it's Barnabas listed first along with Paul. But we see a switch in later chapters where Paul is listed first, then Barnabas, right? And what we assume is that Paul began to take the leadership related to the two. And so what I envision is that Barnabas was this guy that not only blew courage and encouragement within Paul, but kind of gave him the reins of leadership. How do I kind of assume that? Because Barnabas was willing to go with Paul on the first missionary journey together when Paul is clearly listed as the leader of those two. Deep friendships build you up. They don't tear you down. Deep friendships can celebrate your wins and they stand by you through your losses. They are places of encouragement and strength. We're better because of close friends' investment and influence in our lives. Look at Thessalonians. First Thessalonians 5.11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. One of the one another's of Scripture is that we are constantly encouraging each other. Ephesians 4.12. It's a verse maybe we use with our children at times. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs so that it may benefit those that listen. I love this. There's this assessment going on in terms of conversation with others that I must empathize and understand their needs in a way to be able to speak truth, relevant truth to them, to be able to encourage them. I want to unpack this idea a little bit more in our third point. It's this. Deep friendships display candor and counsel with carefulness. Candor is open and honest feedback, expression within a relationship. It's frankness. It's the ability to speak truth in love for the good of our friend. Candor always requires courageousness. But it must be done with carefulness, which urges wisdom and consideration of the timing of my words. Not in an overtly cautious or timid sense, but in a caring sense for the other's emotional state. What we say, the content, should be influenced by when we say it, the circumstances. Both candor and counsel require carefulness in sharing. So after a significant decision has been made by the early church of their understanding and application of the gospel in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas happen to be in Jerusalem, and so they travel back to Antioch. And there, they begin having a conversation about what their future looks like. And we pick that up in the story in 
verse 36. It says, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with him. That happened to be his cousin. But Paul didn't think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. So what we see here is that Barnabas, the people person, is saying, hey, I see all this potential in John Mark. He's of value. I think he should go with us on this journey. And Paul's like, I'm so committed to the mission, nothing else is going to get in the way of what we're setting out to do. And it leads to a conflict. Now, we don't know a whole lot related to the details. Was there sin involved in the conflict? We know that it ended up leading them their separate ways. And what we see is that this conflict lasted for a period of time, but ended up having amazing results. And I think of the frankness and the candor with which they probably spoke in this conversation, right? Because Barnabas took John Mark with him on a second missionary journey and invested in his life, and he became the author of the Gospel of Mark. Paul took Timothy and Silas and others on their journey, and what ended up being one journey together was two journeys to encourage church planning in the early churches. When I think of some of us, we may be in relationships at the moment where there is this sense of conflict and uncertainty. Maybe there's a lack of forgiveness, a lack of understanding whether we should be pursuing reconciliation. I would encourage you to check out, we have a resource that we've created called E4, which are our online studies. And one of the studies that we have, it's called Interpersonal Relationships, which helps us apply biblical principles in times of conflict as we seek reconciliation, talk about what forgiveness looks like. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Generally think wounds bad, kisses good. Here it's the opposite. That wounds from a trusted love friend are for our own good, for our own benefit. That they're willing to say the hardest things to us. That a true friend will look us in the eye, risk the uncomfortability of the moment and the possible friendship to share us truth to get us in line with what God desires. The path of least resistance is not the way to forge deep friendships. Silence in the face of a brother or sister's folly is no act of love. A deep friend doesn't have the I don't want to get involved mindset with each other. I think the question that I've been posing of myself for those that are close in my life are my friends just being a fan or are they being a true friend? Do I give them the freedom, but do my friends willingly respond back with truth and love when I need it? I love how Tim Keller puts, he says, we need to be sure that our friends have what he calls hunting licenses. They're able to go into the dark places and secret gardens of our life to call us back to holiness. Holiness. 
Proverbs 27, 17 says, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Proverbs 27, 9, perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. Another word uses counsel there. Proverbs 25, 20, like one who takes away a garment on a cold day, or like vinegar poured on a wound, is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. This idea of singing songs to a heavy heart is this song of joy. That it wouldn't make sense for us to sing this song of joy to someone who's grieving or hurting at the moment. It is this understanding of time, of sensitivity, of carefulness in our relationships with one another. For true friendships, there is this emotional connection. And so... When my friend is struggling, I can't help but emotionally be connected and involved in that. That for them to flourish, I need to flourish, right? That we choose out of loyalty to give ourselves for their sake and for their benefit. I love what William Shakespeare says. He says, a friend is one that knows who you are, understands where you have been, accepts what you have become and still gently allows you to grow. I have one final point, and before you write it down and pack away, I'm going to unpack this a little bit. So I encourage you maybe to keep your notes out. That the last thing I see throughout Scripture and in their life are that deep friendships are cultivated through and centered on a friendship with Christ. I'll show you the verses in a moment, but I want to let you write that down. That we see in Acts chapter 13 that Paul and Barnabas are at the church in Antioch. They are worshiping. They are praising the Lord together. And the Holy Spirit speaks and says, Set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas, to the work that I had called them to. We see when Paul talks about 1 Sephorus and 2 Timothy, he says, You know very well in many ways how he helped me in Ephesus, in the ministry of centering other people in their relationship with Christ. I think three things that I think of how this looks like from a practical side of things is the first, deep friendships prioritize God's friendship. Jesus is the only one capable and who has filled the true marks of being a friend. That the friendship with Jesus is our most important friendship that we need to place at the center of our friendship with others. Because in doing so, when we make the gospel the center of our relationship, it opens the door to experience intimacy with others. Right? Because the gospel says that I'm more deeply flawed and sinful than I ever dare imagine. That I'm more deeply loved and accepted than I could dream of. That when I base and understand my acceptance on who Jesus is and what he has done and what he says about me, that I am not as deeply concerned about what others think of me because I found my true acceptance in him. It opens the door for us to be vulnerable with each other because we're not looking for something from a deep friendship that God never desired and designed us to experience. 
It allows us to be vulnerable in relationship, but it also allows us to display grace to each other. Because there's going to be mistakes, we're going to be hurt, and there's going to be times when we feel like we've been let down. But understanding that we love not because of what we've received from others, because he first loved us, that we love out of the overflow of God's love allows us to display grace to others when they don't deserve it. It allows us to display grace and love and affection, to seek reconciliation, to deepen that friendship even amidst the hurt. Deep friends prioritize God's friendship. Second, they help you think like, act like, and love like Jesus. I think today friendships often uh, languish in kind of this uh, lack of going anywhere because they're built around common interest or a desire to mitigate loneliness. I would encourage you that if you have close friends who have said yes to Jesus, to make the goal explicit in your conversation to honor Christ and to be conformed to his image. I don't think that looks like preaching a sermon to each other every time that you're together, right? But what I do think it looks like is asking each other hard questions, asking each other's questions that drive us back to this holiness uh, means just to be set apart, this desire to live my life in response to what God has done. I thought of some practical questions and began asking myself, how often am I asking my close friends? How can I pray for you? What does your relationship with Jesus look like? Where are you struggling? What is bringing you joy? How are you investing your time, treasure, and talents for God's kingdom? Are you growing in generosity and love and serving others? What is your time with God look like? Are you disciplined? Are you making it a priority? What is something that God is currently teaching you at the moment? Do I have close friends that are helping me think like, act like, and become like Christ? I think a final thing that I see is that deep friends share a commitment to a common cause. I think many times we're led to believe that we're going to form our deep friendships through fun, casual activities. Maybe going to a sporting event or uh, social gatherings. And while certainly this may be a viable option for some, I firmly believe that mission will often drive community. I love in our grace groups we say um, they exist, their purpose is to make disciples who make disciples. And so in the seeing the idea of journeying with other people into trying to be conformed like Christ, but also in a way of asking ourselves, who are we helping Jesus make sense to in our lives? Who are those three people that we can constantly be praying for? I talked to one of the leaders this week of our grace group. It's a women's group that meets on Wednesday mornings. And over the summer, they have adopted a local ministry in Wadsworth of teen moms. And so they're helping clean and organize their closet, but they're also investing in building relationships with teen moms. And what I can guarantee, they enjoy relationship as they 
work together and study and kind of discuss like the message and things we have, but their relationship will deepen as they serve together. Deep relationships often form behind a commitment to a common cause. I think the natural question that all of us should be and probably are asking is, how do I form these deep, close friendships? Dale Carnegie would say in his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, that we should become genuinely interested in other people, that we should smile, that we should remember names, that we should be a good listener, and talk in terms of other people's interests. While these are helpful, helpful suggestions that we should consider, I don't think friendship is something that we grasp or strive to do. Rather, it's someone we become. That once I commit to allowing God's friendship to define who I am, I become a person that's attractive to be around, a person that others want to enjoy fellowship with. That once I allow God to define my perspective and expectation around relationships, I believe that friendships will form. I think a few questions we should ask ourselves if we sit here and we're not fully satisfied with the friendships that we have. I think the first and most important question is, have I made Jesus my first friend? Have I said yes to him? Do I understand the gospel and the depth of his love for me? Am I becoming more and more like him in the way that I treat others? Am I growing in my ability and my desire and my passion to treat others with grace and respect? When I've been thinking a lot about on Father's Day in particular, how am I modeling friendship for my kids? Am I giving them a picture of what deep, close friendship looks like? Am I allowing my life to influence the way that they think through friendship? Am I spending all of my time and energy just palcating social pleasures? Or am I intentionally cultivating deep friendships with people? Am I allowing the gospel to shape the perspective and paradigm with which I view friendships. Friendships isn't so much a series of what we do, it's who we become. And so as we allow God and the gospel to shape and define us, we become the friend that we so deeply desire and we can begin to share intimacy because we understand that at other times people will hurt us, but we can display grace. We can make ourselves vulnerable because we're not afraid of what others think. That we can open the door. Vulnerability begets vulnerability. And allowing God to define who I am gives us the freedom to experience relationships that our heart deeply desires. Will you pray with me? Father, as we sit here on Sunday afternoon, we know that there's a wide spectrum that there may be people who feel like they don't have anyone who would be considered a close friend. There may be others who are trying to juggle different relationships. 
Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and discernment to allow us to have a proper perspective as it relates to our friendships. Lord, we recognize the importance that our friendships end up forming us. And so I pray that as Grace Church, we would seek to experience deep biblical friendship with one another, that we would prioritize the relationship that we have with others, that we would seek to give to honor your grace. And Lord, most of all, that we would allow your grace to make us more like you in a way that we live in response to your good news from the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.